Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a morning to gather with your people to celebrate you and your grace from beginning to the end. We thank you that you don't just start the work and then someday complete it. But you are moment by moment giving us grace. Week by week as you call us together to hear from your word. To celebrate your grace through the supper. To sing together and stir one another up to love and good deeds. But because we recognize it's your grace, we continually look to you and say, give more, Lord. Open your word to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Corinthians chapter 10. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. When Pastor Scott asked me if I could preach this Sunday and explained his plan for our fall culture series with uh, that he was going to set up the fall culture series with a few sermons establishing our confidence in and submission to the Word of God, this morning's passage came to mind. As we think about battles that press in on our homes and on our churches and even on our nation, Verses like like this verse here in the middle of our passage are a reveille, a bugle call, calling us to arms. We destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. That is a glorious aim. And that gets us excited. What a glorious thing to join in. This is God's truth with the fife and the drum. This is a call to spare no arrows. And yet as I studied this passage, I found there was so much more here than I anticipated. These verses are regularly used to show the need for studying apologetics or developing a thoroughly Christian worldview. So it's all ideas. And let me be clear, 
There is value in studying apologetics. And the truths of Scripture will inform how we think about economics and war and health care and sexuality. Hearing God's Word speak into areas like this is why your pastors have chosen to set aside a mini-series on uh, these cultural issues. But there is a call in our passage a call to submission to Christ that goes deeper than just verbal jiu-jitsu. It reaches further than just your philosophy. Jesus doesn't just want your vote. He doesn't just want your retweet. He wants your heart. He demands your whole life, your whole ministry. Jesus demands our whole allegiance. And as our culture also demands our total allegiance, as it increasingly distances itself from God's standards and embraces a moral insanity where you have drag queens performing for kids in public library, we will be and we must be countercultural. We must be get used to being weird. And some of you are like, I'm good. That's my specialty. And I can feel you there. But many of us struggle here. And there is an urgent need in our day for moral courage. But as we critique our culture of pride, it's easy to be guilty of it. We can pride ourselves in being countercultural while we miss all the ways in which we have adopted the values of our culture and they have shaped the way we engage those issues. We want to imagine, each of us, myself included, that we have not been influenced. We are above being influenced by our culture. Or cultures, maybe it's more fair to say because there's a lot of different cultures. You've got mainstream culture. You've got a whole host of minority subcultures. We've got a generic human culture. What Paul will refer throughout 2 Corinthians as being in the flesh. Walking in the flesh. But we all have different groups whose values we adopt, whose methods we mimic, whose approval we crave. We want to imagine that we have reached a point of maturity where we have transcended the petty influence of culture. But our passage this morning, and and, and Paul's example more broadly, teaches us we don't transcend this influence. We fight it. We make war. We make war in a battle that is not against flesh and blood. We make war in the battlegrounds of our hearts and our homes and our churches. But our battle is not against those others who are there in those places with us. We make war to take every thought captive to Christ. To obey Christ. To please Christ. And our passage this morning shows us that if we are going to wage this war and we want to honor King Jesus, 
We must learn how to wage the war in His way, with His Word, on His timetable, and for His ends. Put another way, we could say that we wage war meekly, we wage war confidently, we wage war patiently, we wage war constructively. That's a lot of ground. And I felt like the Lord just filled me with so much encouragement in this passage. And yet with a week full of being sick, I didn't have the order that I typically like to have. And I have so many of you reaching out and saying, I was praying for you all week. And I'm like, well, look what God did. (laughs) Maybe you shouldn't pray for me. And yet, that's what 2 Corinthians is all about. We are waging war, not in the flesh, but in the power that God gives. And the power that God gives, gives us a special way to wage this war in meekness. It gives us a special anchor for truth, His Word. It gives us a a special and surprising timeline as we are patient. Patient in the midst of things that seem really important. That's weird. And He gives us a special goal. First, we wage war meekly. Waging war in God's ways in His way means that we must operate in a spirit of meekness and gentleness. Look at verse 1-3 through again. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Paul knows he has a right and even a responsibility to exercise his apostolic authority in a forceful way, if necessary. But he's slow to do this. You get to the end of these four chapters, these latter four chapters, you should know if you don't already, that they they function as a, a distinct unit of thought. Likely, um, Paul uh, may... Uh, there, there is debate here, but the, the tone change from chapters 1 to 9 and then 10 through 13 is so radical that it, many scholars feel Paul must have written the first and then set his pen down and maybe gotten more information. And when he returned to finish the letter, he, he was very concerned. But even in these latter four chapters, <clears throat> you find a surprising sweetness. And he gets to the end and, and he, he's saying, I, I know I have the, the responsibility to put things in order. For chapter 13, verse 10, he says, I write these things 
that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. So Paul knows he has the responsibility and the right to speak forcefully. But we see in Paul's words and his example that his default as a minister of reconciliation, which is his term earlier in the book, a minister of reconciliation, he wants to have a humble spirit and a gentle manner. He was, to borrow D.A. Carson's explanation of these terms here, generous in his estimations of others, slow to take offense, well able to bear reproach, consistently above mere self-interest. If this is true of the apostle who saw the risen Christ, who was lifted up to the heavenly places, who was used to establish so many New Testament churches and write half the books in our New Testament, how much more should it be true of us? And yet the real example here is not Paul's. It's Jesus's. That's what Paul points to. He says, I entreat you, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. As we learn about the life of Christ as Jason has walked the men through, sure there were occasions that demanded hard words, but Jesus' ministry is characterized by his softer grace. A grace that says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus spent the majority of his ministry laying down his life, and he calls us to do the same. He put up with thick-headed disciples. He bore hardship. He endured abuse. He died under his father's wrath. He died. He died so that we could live. And now he calls his people to a similar life where we die to ourselves in meekness so that others can live. And this, Paul felt this. He had taken these thoughts captive in his own mind. He had determined he was going to live not in the flesh, but in meekness. And this meant suffering. And here in our passage, we find him suffering He was being attacked. And he was seeing his work in Corinth undermined by show-offs and charlatans. People that don't even love Jesus. And the people that loved Jesus were falling for it. And they were looking at Paul and saying, 
What have you got, Paul? You can't talk like these guys. These guys are smarter than you. They talk so well. Some of you... It's, uh, some of you know what this feels like. In part, to have not only your decisions second-guessed, but your character questioned. This is where we lose it. We want, we want to just unleash a full broadside against our critics. But Paul doesn't. He doesn't blast the Corinthians. He begs them. This is just so beautiful. Paul could have blasted them. He was an apostle. He begged them. Corinthians were not his enemy. They were his children. He loved them. If you look over at chapters 10 through 13, you just see this again and again. As he says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. He says, um, I'm going to miss this verse chapter 11 verse 10 he said or 11 why am I doing what I'm doing because I do not love you God knows I do chapter 12 verse 15 he says I will go most gladly spend and be spent for your souls this is a man who loves this people deeply some of us could learn from the emotional vulnerability of the apostle here. We would have written this church off. We would have distanced ourselves. I don't know what's going on with them. And I'm, I'm not going to invest myself too much because they may just fall away. Not Paul. But flip back a few chapters to chapter 6, verse 11 maybe. We'll look at it later. 6, verse 11. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Paul loved this people. And so although in the, these latter chapters we have a very honest expression of Paul's natural exasperation and Paul pushing past his normal standards of modesty, the tone throughout remains remarkably intimate because he's pleading with a people he loves. And this love made him gentle and his gentleness made him slow. We're going to unpack this slowly or a little more later, but as we should note here, just 
there's a connection between gentleness and slowness. You see it, I think, in James when he says, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. But we know this instinctively. If one of you who has just had a baby says, Warren, go grab the baby. I don't go running and grab the baby by an arm at a full tilt. No, you don't yank the baby. When you're wanting to be gentle, you move slow. The problem is, and we know this particularly in our day, that sometimes slowness comes not from meekness, but from cowardice. And we're concerned about that. Sometimes an unwillingness to speak results from walking in the flesh. But that doesn't have to be, and we can't let that keep us back from God's call here, God's call to wage His war in meekness. Let's move on to the second point. Second, we wage war confidently. Waging war in God's way means we submit to His Word in all things and celebrate it as reliable, powerful, and sufficient. Look at verses 4-5. through The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul was not one who was being meek because he was second-guessing all the things that he was believing and had taught. He was not operating slowly with the Corinthians because maybe these false teachers aren't so bad. No. The false teachers that are in Corinth, he labels in chapter 11, he says they are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Paul was not backing off. He was a meek man, but he was also a truth man. We don't have to choose between those. If we are going to wage war God's way, they must be brought together. A full confidence in God's truth expressed in a meekness towards God's people. So Paul says here, when we go looking for our weapons, We go for the strong stuff. The weapons of our warfare have divine power. Kids, if we were going to have an airsoft battle and I was handing out automatic guns, 
Would any of you say to me, Nah, I'm really good at throwing these little pellets. No, that would be crazy. You would get destroyed. Serious warfare requires serious weaponry. I wonder how many of us are throwing the pellets of our own logic and cleverness at our parenting and at our ministry and at our cultural engagement. Or maybe you've got it right in these areas, but in so many areas of life, working out a life of not living, not waging war in the flesh, but in the power that God gives through His Spirit and through His Word is something that each of us need to learn. Paul had learned this. He had owned it. He had made a point of setting aside the methods that the world recommends so that he could pick up the weapons that God had given you know, like use both hands because although we immediately think, oh, the weapons of our warfare, that is the sword of the Spirit. Well, kind of, maybe, but the nearer context, 2 Corinthians 6, says we have weapons in our right hand, in our left hand. Which means Paul may not be in the same place as he was thinking when he was writing Ephesians 6. Certainly, though, He has the Word of God in mind. How do we know this? Well, look at chapter 4, verse 2. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul said, I'm not going to use the world's methods. I'm not going to use lean on being clever, being funny, being winsome. But I'm going to use God's methods. And remember, God's methods, the weapons of warfare in the right hand and then the left, look like a lot of different things. Again, referencing 2 Corinthians 6, it might look like afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonment, riots, labors, endurance, and all these things. Knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. And so we take up God's weapons. We take up the Word. Knowing that following God in His methods won't always be comfortable, as we just heard Paul referring to. Sometimes, putting aside the world's methods and embracing God's methods and putting God's power on display means being judged unfairly by the culture, or even within the church. The accusation against Paul, flipping back to our passage, is that he's walking according to the flesh. Paul, not very impressive. He's been ministering for 20-some years now. 
And this isn't easy ministry. He has been traveling constantly. He has been frequently in danger. Well, let's flip over uh, over and hear uh, his description of his ministry. His ministry, this is it. Um, In chapter 11, verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jew the lashes, 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked at sea. A night, I shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from our, my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. After that sort of life for two decades, Paul was a frail man. And compared to these young preachers for hire, he couldn't hold a candle to them rhetorically. And they looked at Paul and they said, Paul, you're not really impressive. Your age is showing, old man. And he looked at them in all their youthful exuberance and charm and he said brother your flesh is showing your ego is showing they looked at Paul and said Paul which one is it are you are you meek or are you bold because you write these really bold things but you come and you're like a, a grandpa you're just so kind to people Paul was not bouncing between personalities. Now I'm meek Paul, now I'm bold Paul, now I'm bold Paul, now I'm meek Paul. He wasn't being inconsistent. He says in chapter 10, verse 11, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. We are men of our words. So he wasn't being inconsistent. That's what he was accused of. And those who fixate on purely human methods are the same ones that make this accusation against him. They do it because that's the only frame of reference they have. When Paul is meek and bold and meek and bold, it's because, you know, he wants to say some big things, but he's kind of outclassed. He's out of his league. And so he, like, gets really excited, but then... He's a bit of a coward. And you know, we can appreciate that because people are like that. That's the only explanation they have for it. Those who fixate on human methods only have human categories. The categories that dominate your mind will explain your world. And if you focus on the psychological and the sociological... Your evaluations will be psychological and sociological. Your solutions will be psychological and sociological. But God is at work in the world. He gives us new realities. And those new realities demand that we not consider things merely in the flesh. Which is why Paul says in chapter 5, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh 
Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Why? Because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There are new realities the world does not know about. There is power the world does not know about in His Word. So we will look like fools sometimes when we appeal for the, to, to, to this. Because to those that are perishing, the, the cross is folly. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1? The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So we can wage this war confidently. There is more, but let's move on to point three. Wage war patiently. We have the call to meekness. We have the call to confidence. Interestingly, this kind of lines up with the two greatest commandments. Why are we confident in God's word and we use it? Because we want to please God and love Him. And why are we meek? Because we want to please God and love others. Love God. Love others. How do we put these things together in our lives together? Our life together? We wage war patiently. We wage war in God's way by following God's timetable. At the convergence of humility and confidence where love of God's truth and love of God's people come together, there is patience. Look at verses 5 and 6. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Many of us who value truth would have left off that last clause. You don't need it. Or do you? Surely, once truth has been shown to be violated, anything less than swift, decisive action is cowardice and compromise, isn't it? Do we not have the bones of countless institutions, movements, and denominations serving as warnings because false teachers were tolerated too long? Haven't freedoms been lost because we're slow on the draw? Yet here we have Paul. I'm ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So what does this mean? To understand, we should remember that Paul was dealing with more than one group. He's writing to the Corinthians, you. And he's writing about a group of teachers, they. He's mainly concerned about you 
about the Corinthians. He needs to deal with they, them. These are outsiders. They're probably newly arrived. They're traveling Christian teachers, but they're not subject to traditional church discipline. And this may explain why Paul indicates and instructs no formal action. He contents himself with his unequivocal warning of who these people are. We read, they're false teachers, false apostles, deceitful workmen. They are the servants of Satan. He is very clear. He's also clear that they are preaching. They're not just bad people preaching a good gospel. That comes really close to who Paul was dealing with in Philippians, I think. With some people with bad motives were preaching a good gospel and said, Paul said, I'm glad for them. These people, chapter 11 says, they're bringing a different spirit. They're bringing a different gospel. They're proclaiming another Jesus. This is a problem. And Paul, Paul is a truth guy. He's not going to back down on this. They are a problem. Paul is not writing off the Corinthians. We don't even have indication that he has just written off the Corinthians. He have paid these guys. These guys are preachers for hire. Probably, I mean, they're not going to preach unless they get paid. Some people, they are receiving these false teachers. They're probably paying them. They're buying their books. don't have any indication that Paul writes off those Corinthians. He's concerned for them deeply, which is why he begs them. He entreats them. He says, I'm going to have to deal with this. Please deal with it yourself first. There's so much here to try to unfold the flow of this. Let me just um, point out that what Paul was dealing with in Corinth includes these false teachers. But just so you can see the, the, the patience he's showing, it includes other things and it includes things he's been dealing with since the time he's planted the church. Since the our first Corinthians... Um, which is probably the second or so letter that he wrote to them. But um, flip over, over to chapter 12 real quick. I'll make this brief. He says, I fear that perhaps when I come... This is verse 20. Chapter 12, verse 20. I fear that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I wish, and you may not find me as you wish. Kids, if your dad or mom ever says, you don't want angry dad... I mean, Paul kind of is saying that here. Um, he's saying, you don't, wanna, you don't want me to have to come in a severe way. He says, I'm, I'm concerned that perhaps there may be quarreling. Yeah, then 1 Corinthians. Jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. 
A fear that when I come again, my God may humble me because of you. That I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. It seems like some of... Remember 1 Corinthians 5? They had to discipline a guy for some gross immorality. Stuff like that was going on. And there were encouraging signs and then it seems like there was some reversion and some backsliding. And yet even at this point, Paul does not just write off this church. He is patient. And he sends Titus and another brother to them. And he said, you just hear as you read these chapters the confidence he has in them. Patience has fallen on hard times in our day because we think we are responsible for having opinions on so many things. Our news feeds tell us about so much. We have about five minutes with each thing in which to form a judicious opinion. Well researched. Can we be honest? We are not that good. We're, we're like that doctor you hate who like rushes in in five minutes, sits down, like is staring at the computer screen and spends all that and he, he's supposed to give you like some insight into your health in those five minutes. Um, that overbooked doctor is suffering in his insight and his bedside manner. And I think we are too. We've deluded ourselves into thinking that we are masters of efficiency when in fact we're just being glib. Instead, let's slow down to God's timetable. Let's see Paul's example. And let's wage war with patience towards one another. Fourth, and I'll just mention this, because it's actually outside of a passage, kind of. Wage war constructively. Waging war in God's way means we are working for his ends. The goal he has assigned. We should remember as we wage warfare what the war is for. What is the war for? Well, it's not for destruction. It's not to nuke the place and make it uninhabitable. Some Christians really lean into the combative elements in verse 4 and 5. But our work is not primarily destructive. You are going to destroy strongholds. You should. You are going to destroy arguments. You should. But you are not God's demolition man. How can I say this? Well, look at Paul. Just outside of our passage... Verse 8. Why is he slow? Why is he meek? Even though he's a truth guy. Even if... Well, here, he says, our authority was given to us for building you up and not for destroying you. That's chapter 10, verse 8. For building you up and not destroying you. He repeats this at the end. Chapter 13. We already referenced it. In verse 10, he says, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Yes, there are tasks that demand demolition. 
but they are to clear the clear the ground so that something can be built. We tear down ideas, we don't tear down people because God cares about the people. I need to wrap this up. We have here in our passage this beautiful example of Paul. And he lays out for us the fact that if we are going to please Christ and follow Him as our King, we must bring every thought captive to obedience to Him. But this is not all cerebral. This is not just about mastering some ideas. This is a whole life that's lived out with one another in meekness, in confidence, with patience, and constructively. Because we are joining, not in an endeavor to show that we're awesome, that we're good people, but in a a task that lifts up God's power in God's gospel, in Jesus Christ. Let's pray that the Lord will help us to do this. Father, I thank you for your word, for the example of Paul. I pray that you would, by your spirit and with your word, fill us with confidence and make us meek and help us be patient as we seek to see your kingdom built. In Jesus' name.